All right, kids, you may be dismissed. To my right, your left, see Desiree back there. So head toward Mrs. Crowder. And we're in a quite lengthy passage today. Woohoo! Congratulations, you're here. It is God's word, so we're going to take it seriously. Um, the title of the message today, as we saw in the reading of the passage, is Jacob is on his way home. So we're going to talk about God's grace that gets you home. The grace that gets you home. And would you with me right now, quiet again your hearts and ask the Lord would speak to you and you'd be willing to change as a result of hearing his word right now. Would you pray with me? Prepare our hearts, O God to accept your word. Silence in us any voices but your own so that we may hear your word and also do it. Through Christ our Lord, amen. I was talking with some friends recently and we were talking about some restaurants that we really enjoyed going to and we were all kind of giving our own uh, spin to the conversation. Hey, have you tried this place? Have you tried this place? Well, I got to a, a turn and I got to share one of my favorite places to go eat. And I shared why, and it's because of a dessert there. And I was shocked to find out that there were people at the table who had no idea what this dessert was at this restaurant. I mean, utterly shocked. Have you ever heard of a chocolate molten lava cake? Oh. oh, yeah, a chocolate molten lava cake. And I'm not just talking about any molten lava cake that you can buy at the store, warm up in your microwave. No, 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 no. Not all molten lava cakes are equal. But the one that you can find at your local Chili's, that will not disappoint you. If it does, you can get a refund for being here this, for the sermon this morning. No, no, no. But why is the Chili's Molten Lava Cake so good? Well, it's because they take three main delicious desserts that are normally really good by themselves, but they put them together to make an unbeatable one. They take a chocolate cake, they fill it with hot, gooey fudge in the middle, and then they put an ice cream scoop on top that's just melting into the cake. And oh, man, I can like taste it now. So good, and they put a little caramel drizzle. But these three main things that they put together, good each and of themselves, but when together, it is one of the wonders of the world. It is, is the holy trinity of desserts. It is so good, and it's just right in front of you, and all you have to do is to go to 38th Street or 86th Street and go to a Chili's. It's right down the road. These three things, all good individually, but when put together, provide a transformative experience. Well, as we come to our text today, God's relentless grace shows up in three really clear ways. And unless we're looking for them all together, we actually might miss the transformational experience. The three elements of God's relentless grace that I want you to see today are, one, God's providence, his power, and his protection, and then we'll look to see how each one of these 
actually, we can see these in our own lives. His providence, his power, and his protection. The big idea then this morning, what I want you to walk out of the building with is this, that God's providence, power, and protection show that he is at work to get you home. If you are a Christian here this morning and you're sitting in this pew or in this seat, this is true of you. That God's providence, his power, and his protection show that he is at work to get you home. With that in mind, let's start by looking at the first element of God's relentless grace, his providence. And how do we see God's providence? Well, the first point this morning is this. God's providence is seen in the rearview mirror. God's providence is seen in the rearview mirror. We'll get to what we mean by rearview mirror here in a second. But as we find Jacob this morning, he is growing in the realization that he is becoming less and less welcome by the minute. He overhears the evidence of growing distaste for him through Laban's sons. After working for Laban for 20 years and being tricked by him multiple times, you can imagine that there would be a growing desire to leave this trickster of all tricksters, which he himself mirrored. But it seems as though any desire to leave was suppressed by a fear of Laban's retaliation. What would he do? What would my father-in-law do if I try to leave? We can see way down in verse 31, as Scott read it just a minute ago, Jacob's answer why he fled so quickly, he says, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. But this fear was not to have the last word. In verse 3, going back up to the beginning of this chapter, we read that Jacob receives instruction from Yahweh that it is time for him to, as he says to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred. Now, you may be brand new to church here this morning, and if you are, I'm so happy that you're here. You have a Bible open in front of you, and this may be the first Bible you've ever had open in front of you. I want to give you some not-so-insider information this morning. When you see in your Bibles the word Lord, and it's not all capitalized, uh, that spelling, which you can see that down in verse 35, that the word Lord shows up and it's not all capitalized, that word Lord is the English translation for the Hebrew word Adonai, which simply means ruler or king. You can see that again in in Rachel's response uh, to Laban in verse 35. Now, Here in verse 3, what we see is the word Lord all capitalized. Each of the letters are capitalized, all caps. That is how the name Yahweh is translated into English for us. They're translated the same word. They both are translated Lord, but they're not. They don't mean the same thing. It's two different things. The non-fully capitalized Lord, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, is a title. It's the title of ruler or king. But the all caps Lord is God's relational name. It's not a title. It's a name. And this name reminds us that Yahweh is the God who makes covenants with people to express his love. 
and keeps his covenant to display his faithfulness. Let me say that again real quick. The name Yahweh reminds us that God is the God who makes covenants to people, with people to express his love. And on the other hand, he keeps his covenants to display his faithfulness. And the reason he does this is so that we may believe in and glorify him. And so in verse 3, Jacob receives instruction from Yahweh, this covenant-making and keeping Lord, that he is to return home. And he tells Jacob at the very end, I will be with you. I will be with you. He is saying to Jacob, I will be at work to get you home. I will come along with you to ensure that you make it home. This phrase, I will be with you, would have reverberated around in Jacob's ears the promise to him made some 20 years ago and three chapters ago when Yahweh said to him at Bethel, I am with you. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So far, Yahweh has done exactly what he has promised. First, he promised him offspring. Through Jacob, uh, even though Jacob uh, made some unwise decisions marrying multiple women and their maids, not the wisest decision, God even so fulfilled his promise by giving him 12 sons. God promised him blessing, prosperity, and God fulfilled his promise by making Jacob's flock wealthier and greater than even Laban's flock, according to Laban's sons. And then, in, and then the third promise God makes to Jacob is land. But Jacob is still an alien in the country that he's living in. So God reaffirms his promise, I will be with you until I've done all that I've promised to you, until he's finished and fulfilled this promise of land. And so in verse 4 then Jacob calls his wives Rachel and Leah out from the out to the field to have a talk with them to explain to them Yahweh's providential hand and how it has guided them the whole way. But now Yahweh is directing them to return home. You can imagine that Jacob maybe feared simply saying, "Well, God said it, so let's do it." To them, maybe that they wouldn't have packed up so willingly. But he goes, and so what he does is he actually goes through a meticulous list of happenings of the last 20 years to give an abundance of reason why they should be willing to leave for Canaan, why they should trust this Yahweh and leave for his father's house. So let your eyes just now glide through Jacob's monologue to his wives in verses 4 through 13. And I'm just going to summarize kind of as we go. So in verse 5, Jacob recounts that Laban no longer favors Jacob as he did before. Yet, in the same verse, the God of his father has been with him. Meaning that God still has favor on him. Laban may not have favor on him, but God still has favor on him. Then in verse 6 and 7, Jacob explains that though he served Laban with all his strength, Laban still cheated Jacob and changed his wages 10 times. Yet, at the end of verse 7, we see Jacob point Rachel and Leah's eyes to God's workings. 
He says that God did not permit him, Laban, to harm me. In verse 8, Jacob gives examples of how Laban attempted to trick Jacob. But then in verses 9 through 12, he shows that God still prospered them despite Laban's attempts. Then in verse 13, as though it were a cherry on top, God revealed himself to Jacob as the God of Bethel where Jacob had received previously a magnificent vision and a promise. What Jacob did was trace for Rachel and Leah here in this monologue pain points that he had experienced along the way. However, he also at the same time is pointing out these meticulous afflictions, pain points that he had experienced. He pointed to God's working in the midst of all of it. Kind of the under the current working of God. Or we could say above the fray, working of God, doing what God does as sovereign, as king, as Lord. His wives then answer uh, in verse, at the end of verse 16, and they say, whatever God has said to you, do. So he's got a positive response from his wives. And before we move on to the next part of the story, the escape, we should pause here to see that when Jacob traced out these pain points in his life, what he was doing, he was showing, he was pointing that God was working through it. He gave us a really good idea of what recounting God's providence looks like in our lives. First, what do we mean by God's providence? Well, here's a simple definition. I'll get to a complicated, more complicated definition in a second, but it's simply the revealing in real time and real life God's hidden will for our lives. God's providence is the revealing, the pulling back the curtain step by step, second by second, revealing in real life, in real time, God's secret will for our lives. God's providence helps us to explain seemingly random events that happen for the good of all those who are his own. One catechism, the more complicated definition, explains providence like this. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful in lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty. All things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Isn't that just beautiful? And this providence is not general. It is meticulous. Jacob goes and he recounts over the course of 20 years specific ways in which he was feeling pain and affliction at the, uh, under the heavy hand of Laban. So he points to those specific events, but then he points also even more emphatically, at, but God would not let him do that. God would not let him harm me. When looking in the rearview mirror, we begin to see how God had been working in all of it. Jacob began to see how God was working in all of it. One English Puritan pastor in the late 17th century, John Flavel, uh, had a really good line or uh, easy illustration about how to remember 
what providence might look like. Read this with me. The providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can be read only backwards. Okay? Of course, what he's alluding to here is that English is read left to right, or from your vantage point, left to right. And as such, it's how we also view time, left to right, progressing forward. But Hebrew is read right to left, and as such, seems backwards to English readers. He means by this that the way that a believer might understand God's providence in our lives is by looking backwards, looking backwards, or for our purposes, looking in the rearview mirror. When we are able to slow down from the hurriedness of life and take time to recount the ways that God has shown grace and guidance in our life, we're able to identify God's providence, which is his revealing of his hidden will in our lives. Now, here's how you can apply this this week. Let me encourage you to look in the rearview mirror of your life. Take some time this week to recount how the Lord has been meticulously working in your life to bring you here to where you are today, sitting in that pew or chair here at Parkside Bible Church at 1117 this Sunday morning. Maybe you want to really meticulously just recount the miracle of you waking up this morning, getting dressed, and being here. What an evidence of God's grace that might actually show in your life. Or maybe you want to go broader and recount how God led you to a particular college or job and how you were introduced to someone who shared the gospel with you and it changed your life forever. You're maybe from this Pacific or the Atlantic coast, but because of a job or family or friends, you moved to Brownsburg, Indiana, and Google searched churches and found us, and now 20 years after becoming a Christian, you're being encouraged from Genesis 31 to recount God's steps, how he led you here this very morning. What a blessing it is to have you here this morning. Can I encourage you to insert this practice into your personal spiritual disciplines? One of the ingredients of the discipleship pathway that we've enrolled in the last couple months is maturity. Maturity. And one of the ways that we grow in maturity is through personal spiritual disciplines. So I'd encourage you, take some time each day, each week, or maybe just broadly each year to trace God's providence in your story. Maybe you want to phrase it like this. Look for evidences of grace in your life, of his relentless grace in your life. How have you seen God's grace at work in your life or in the lives of people around you? Every Tuesday morning, the Parkside staff and Ross, head of schools over at Bethesda, actually gather out here by Joyce's desk together for 20 to 30 minutes every Tuesday morning to recount evidences of grace that are in our lives the lives of people around us. What we're basically doing is we're tracing, we're pointing out God's relentless grace, his providential hand in our church. It's been really an encouraging practice that we've done together. And I think if you make time to slow down and recount God's providence by looking for evidences of grace around you, 
you'll be very encouraged as well. As we pick back up with our story, we see in verses 17 to 21, uh, Jacob packing up all of his possessions. He's heading back to the land of his kindred. And all of this language here in this section actually echoes backwards to a description of Abraham in Genesis 12, leaving uh, his family, taking all of his possessions and heading to a land that God would show him, heading to Canaan. It's actually, it echoes forwards a little bit too because it shows us a little bit about what the Exodus is going to look like for the people of Israel. That under the heavy hand of Egyptian slavery, they are going to escape, ski-daddle out of Egypt really quick, take all of their possessions, actually take spoils from uh, the Egyptians as well, and head to the land of Canaan. So Jacob is packing up quick, and he is running for fear of his father-in-law. In In this next section, uh, verses 22 to 42, we're going to see a battle of the gods. Whose god or gods are more powerful? And Through an interesting set of events, we'll actually see that Laban's gods are mocked, while Jacob's God is proven powerful. And that's the second element of of God's relentless grace that we see in our text this morning, God's power. And and, And how do we see it? Well, our second point this morning is this. God's power is seen in contrast to our idols. God's power is seen in contrast to our idols. Laban hotly pursues Jacob for seven days to make up for Jacob's three-day lead time. But the evening before, we see that in verse 29, that it's the day after that Laban reaches him. So the evening before Laban reaches Jacob, God intervenes. Look there in verse 24 with me to see what God says to Laban. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Oh, that was close. Jacob was almost overtaken. And the night before, God comes and intervenes and tells Laban, don't say anything to Jacob, good or bad. That's a what we call a merism, or what the Hebrews would, the technical term, where they would have placed two opposite sides of the spectrum out there and said, anything in between is fair game for what you're either warning about or celebrating. And so Alpha and Omega, God being the Alpha and Omega, that's a merism of from the beginning to the end and everything in between, God has been God over all of it. And so here, God comes to him and says, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And basically, he's cautioning him on both extremes and everything in between on what he is going to say. And one could say that this vision, this uh, dream actually came to Laban in the nick of time. But as astute people who understand now the providence of God, we would actually say that God came at the perfect time. God's perfect timing. God's timing is always perfect. Laban reaches Jacob in his caravan the next day and reprimands Jacob for his lack of communication. Why didn't you tell me that you were going to leave? 
He tells Jacob about the dream, though, that he had that God intervened. After he vents his anger, he comes to his senses in verse 30 and says, with, look there with me, and now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? He seems to empathize with Jacob by recognizing that the, that the reason he was leaving was actually that he longed greatly. Or he, that is actually two words right back to back that are the same words. And so he could literally translate it, he longed longingly uh, for his father's house. But thankfully, this reads a little bit better in English. He longed greatly for his father's house. But then comes the accusation, but why did you steal my gods? This accusation, Jacob comes back and answers with integrity. Jacob's integrity here is highlighted because he states with certainty that no one, that he hasn't stolen them. Nobody in his caravan has stolen them. And whoever has stolen them deserves to die. This shows Jacob's certainty that no one in his caravan is to blame. However, what the reader knows, but Jacob doesn't, is that Rachel is the culprit. We're not told why Rachel stole these household gods. Maybe she believed in their abilities. Or maybe she wanted to spite her father. Well, what we do know, since we don't know that, what we do know is what she did with them. Look back in verse 34 with me. Verse 34 tells us, Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. And it says, Laban felt about the tent, but did not find them. Now there's an interesting progression, a, a building towards the climax going on in this story because he first goes to whom? He goes to Jacob and he says, I'm going to search your tent. He goes and searches his tent. Can't find it. He goes to Leah. I'm going to search your tent. He goes to Leah and the reader is thinking, oh no, he's getting closer. <laughs> it's getting hotter. And Goes into Leah's, nope, can't find it. Goes to Rachel. Rachel says, I'm sorry, I can't get up. The way of women is upon me. And so he goes feeling about in her tent and can't find it. There's a lot going on here, but the language here gives us the indication that Laban was going about from tent to tent to tent and the building anticipation, the building tensity, uh, what is he going to find? Is he going to look around and be able to see it poking out of Rachel's camel luggage? He was digging, inspecting, and searching everywhere like a with a fine-tooth comb, but he couldn't find them. And finally, he had to admit defeat. Laban could not provide the evidence of stolen gods. So then Jacob responds to Laban's accusation with a reciprocal anger. He berates Laban for the way that he has conducted himself. He hasn't conducted himself with integrity, and so Jacob, the one who his whole life has been one not marked with integrity, now is able to say, in the integrity of my heart, from what he knows, he did not steal them, and he berates Laban for the way he has conducted himself. He finally is able to justify or justly share his complaints with Laban about how poorly he's been treated as a son-in-law to him. Look back in verse 40. Let's start there. There I was, he says, by the 
By day, the heat consumed me. Here, he's, he's airing his, these complaints. And co- the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years, I have been in your house. I served you for 14 years for your two daughters and six years for, my, for your flock. And you have changed my wages 10 times. Oh, that surely would have been frustrating. But for all of his tricks, Laban would not have the last laugh because of Jacob's God. Because of Jacob's God, and Jacob's God is more powerful than Laban's God. So in verse 42, Jacob makes his final declaration of God's power over and against Laban's schemes. Look there with me. He says, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night while Laban was worshiping his gods. Yahweh, in his power, confronted and rebuked Laban. Yahweh was the God who was powerfully at work in Jacob's life. Laban's gods were stolen. Who who would fear gods that can be stolen. There's a subtle message that shines through this section of the story. Idols are utterly useless. Utterly useless. This is a message that's carried on through the whole rest of the Bible. Idols will not help you. Idols will not make you prosperous. They will not make you happy. They will not win in a power duel with God. They will lose. They are powerless. They will disappoint. They will cause depression. They are small. They are weak. And they can ultimately be godnapped. <laughs> That's how small and weak they are. Laban's gods were godnapped. <laughs> Idols are useless. Story illustrates for us, for us perfectly the point that if your gods can be godnapped, your gods are too small. If they can fit snugly into the camel's saddle, then they are too small. At the time when Laban could have used a god to fight for him against Jacob's god, they couldn't even cry for help under Rachel's robes. What useless gods they were to Laban. Isn't that the same with us? That the idols of our hearts cannot really help us. Sure, you may not have carved household gods, carved images on your mantle at home, but you do have televisions, television images maybe on your mantle at home. Maybe that's not your idol, but let me ask you, what are your idols? I love the definition that Augustine gives for idolatry. He says this, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used and, or using anything that is meant to be worshiped. Anything, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that is meant to be worshiped. What are those things that your heart is worshiping that you ought to be, just simply be using? 
not worshiping. When you're alone, what's the first impulse for you to think about? When you get a piece of bad news, where do you run for comfort? When you're anxious about an upcoming meeting at work, do you rely on your own strategies to make it through? Can I encourage you, please don't give your idols the room to breathe because they will not breathe life into you. They will only suck life out of you. They will continually say to you, serve me or die. This is serious stuff. Tim Keller notes that eventually everything we worship in God's place will either enslave us with guilt if we fail to attain them, or anger if someone blocks them from us, or fear if they're threatened, or drivenness since we must have them. Are you enslaved to any of those things? Guilt, or anger, fear, or drivenness since we must have them? If so, they will be about as useful to you as Laban's household gods were to him. Instead of relying on something that should be used and not worship, see God's power in contrast to your idols and rely on him throughout your day. And if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, my simple question to you would be this, what are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? If you are trusting in anything or anyone other than Yahweh, the God who created all things, your God is too small to carry the weight of your trust. Trusting anyone or anything other than the God of the Bible is what the Bible calls the sin of idolatry. God has created humanity to glorify and worship him. Jesus, God in flesh, came to earth and showed us that full, wholehearted trust in him is the only way to have this powerful God on our side rather than against us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? In Jesus, you can find forgiveness of your sin. If you repent of all your sin, turning from trusting it to satisfy you and save you and believe that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was enough to pay for the penalty of your sin, those who repent and believe will be made right with God. For as infinitely great and powerful as God is, so contrastingly small are Laban's gods. And your and my idols are infinitesimally weak. God's power is seen in contrast to our idols. So we've seen the first two elements of God's relentless grace, his providence and his power. God's power is displayed in his protection of Jacob. And, and how do we see God's protection? Well, that brings us to our third point this morning, the final point. And that's this, that God's protection is seen in his ongoing presence. God's protection is seen in his ongoing presence. Laban realizes his fault and wants to bless his daughters and grandsons as much as possible. So he asked them to make, he asked Jacob to make a covenant with him. He calls God to witness and judge this covenant. 
Basically, they're calling on God to act in justice, that if one of them does not uphold their end of the covenant, that God is to take out the curse of the covenant. What's funny about Laban's declaration of this covenant is that he hasn't yet learned his lesson about small gods or rival gods. So in verse 53, he calls to be judge the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father. Laban has in mind here, at minimum, two different gods, two distinct gods, Abraham's and Nahor's. This would have been a common way, actually, to uh, pact a political covenant and appeal to both parties' property or land or regional gods. And not that it changes much, but a couple other good translations actually render and translate this the gods of Nahor and the gods of their father, which actually is verified in other parts of Scripture that there were actually, so if at minimum there's two distinct gods, this translation would actually say that on Nahor's side, there were multiple gods that were being uh, called to witness. And this would be backed up by Joshua 24.2, which says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. So the gods of Nahor are many. The God of Jacob and Isaac and Abraham are one, is one. But Jacob doesn't, and so what we see here is that Jacob doesn't bite on Laban's attempt to dignify useless gods. He swears solely by the fear of Isaac. Now, that's an interesting title for God, the fear of Isaac. I wonder if that was the first time that you realized that title for God is in the Bible. We see it capitalized in our scripture, kind of meaning that it's a a title here. So let me just really simply, this just means that this God is the God whom Isaac feared. We could just move the words around a little bit and it talks about it's the God who Isaac feared. And Jacob was saying, not only is this going to be the God who Isaac feared or stood in awe of, but I am also going to do it too, so I will swear by him. Isaiah 8.13 actually seems to use this title, fear of Isaac, as a springboard for how God's people should respond to God. He says, but the Lord of hosts, him, who, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. And let him be your dread. So let him be your fear. The fear of Isaac. Is he your fear? Do you stand in awe of Yahweh? Is he the fear of David? The fear of John? The fear of Duane? Is he your fear? Do you stand in fear? Of, in the same way. Yahweh has proven that he's going to get Jacob home. So he has also become the one who Jacob fears. Jacob swears by the only God whom should be feared. Then Jacob's family eats a sacrificial meal together with Laban, confirming, or you could use the term ratifying here, their covenant. And the next day, Laban heads home. Reconciliation's been made, they've 
formed a covenant, and he goes. And that's kind of it. It's an abrupt goodbye to the arch villain of the last few chapters, Laban. But what I want you to see is this. God's presence is with Jacob. God wasn't going to let him go. He had promised to not leave him until he had fulfilled his promises to him. God's presence provided providentially many things for Jacob. Prosperity, favor, perseverance, purpose, hope while afflicted, and most notably in this chapter, protection. Just look at all the ways throughout this chapter, Jacob recognizes God's protection. Back in verse 7, he explains to Rachel and Leah that regardless of Laban's schemes, God did not permit him to harm me. In verse 12, the angel of God said to him, I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. The fact that God sees shows his presence and protection of Jacob. In verse 24, we see the word spoken by God to Laban in a dream, the warning that Laban is to be careful not to say anything against Jacob, either good or bad. Even in verse 29, Laban's intense desire to act violently against Jacob is seen to be stayed because of God's warning. He says, it is, my, it is in my power to do you harm. Meaning that great harm is what Laban had the mind of doing. That's what he intended to do even then. But... The God of your father spoke to me, he says. See God's protection of Jacob in staying Laban's malicious intent. And here in verses 43 through 54, Laban and Jacob form a peacemaking covenant, which is the opposite of what Laban had planned on that seven-day hunt. Yahweh's presence is found all throughout the proceedings. In 49, we see the name Mizpah, which was just one of the names that they gave to the locations. They gave it the name Mizpah because they said, the Lord, Yahweh, watch between you and me. When we are out of one another's sight, if you oppress my daughters or if you take, my take any wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. These words, watch and witness, show a recognition of God's omnipresence, that God is with him. And not just that he's everywhere, but that he's specially there with him, with Jacob. God was being called on to execute judgment if any one of the parties broke their end of the covenant. We see all these places in this chapter that God is protecting Jacob. And the reason why why can be found right at the beginning of the chapter with the words that Yahweh speaks that we read at the very beginning, but he speaks to Jacob at the end of verse three, I will be with you. I will be with you, Jacob. Oh, what a blessed promise that is. God's protection is seen in his presence. And brother, sister, God is with us. This is the best message that a saint can hear. This is why the example of Job is so poignant. Satan thinks that Job has, has had a life of ease and says he'll renounce God as soon as God's protection is taken away. But God's protection can't be taken away from his people. 
Satan describes God's protection like this. Have you not put a hedge around him? Talking to God. It's where we get the popular phrase that many people pray, a hedge of protection. Job's family, his wealth, and his health is all taken away from him in an onslaught of attacks by Satan. But God's presence never left Job. God's hedge of protection was never removed completely. The hedge of protection around Job merely got smaller. It shrunk from protection over all of his possessions and family and health down to the protection of his very life. And that is within God's secret will as to why. We don't know why. But what we see in the life of Job is this. God's ongoing presence with Job meant that Job's life would be protected and sustained through to the end. Like Job and like Jacob's faith in God's ongoing presence, so we must trust that God will keep his promises to us. God's protection is seen in his presence. And when Jesus came to earth, he embodied Emmanuel. God being with us. So now believers given the, are given the promised Holy Spirit. Christians are sealed with the Holy Spirit who is, as Paul puts it, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. A guarantee is a down payment, meaning that God has given us the down payment of eternal life now until we acquire possession of it after death. Another way of saying this is, if he's sealed you, he's got you. We, we read elsewhere in scripture, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And once more, the scripture says, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not only is this a God to be feared, like Isaac and Jacob, but he is a holy God to be loved as a father. Soon we'll sing a song, Only a Holy God, and the third verse of that song says this truth so beautifully, we'll sing, who else could rescue me from my failing? Who else would offer his only son? Who else invites me to call him father? Only a holy God. As any good father has concern that his kids arrive home safely, so we must trust in our heavenly father that he will work to see that we are brought home. We have, only to turn, we have only to turn on our idols of self-reliance and trust in his providential, powerful, and protecting hand. God's relentless grace showed up in three ways for Jacob here in Genesis 31. The individually are great. But remember, like a molten lava cake, when seen together, transformative experience is waiting. 
God's providence, his power and protection showed us that God was at work to get Jacob home. And if nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, we can be sure that he will keep us to the end of our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we love you. Help us to love you more. Help us to renounce our idolatry. Help us to renounce our self-dependence. Help us to renounce our pride so that we can trust in your providence. Looking backwards, looking back and seeing, oh God, I thought I made this decision and I did, but you all the way were leading me and guiding me. Oh Lord, thank you for how you've been working. Lord, may we see your relentless grace in your power being contrasted in our, from our idols. May we see you as good and glorious and great and majestic compared to our idols that are worthless. And may we run to, into your protection as you protected Job, as you protected Jacob. May we trust you with our very lives. And if nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, give us all the more assurance that we can be sure that he will keep us to the end of our lives. Ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.